0: Welcome to Religious Studies News. I'm your host, Christian Peterson, and today I'm here with Nulafar Hayeri, Professor of Anthropology at Johns Hopkins University and winner of the AAR Book Award in Constructive Reflective Studies. She's here to speak to us about her book, Say What Your Longing Heart Desires, Women, Prayer, and Poetry in Iran, which was published with Stanford University Press. Congratulations and thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you. Thanks very much for inviting me.
0: Yeah. So I really enjoyed this book as somebody who's also in Islamic studies. I, I feel like I can use a lot of this in my classes in the future. So I, I was very excited to get into it. And uh, you you cover uh, the daily lives of Muslim women and their engagement with, with poetry and prayer in contemporary Iran. Uh, for many listeners, this is going to be a, a context that is uh, unfamiliar to them. So can you can you offer kind of a brief sketch of the socio-political landscape for, for listeners who may not be familiar, What are some of the uh, you, know, basics about contemporary Iran and the daily lives of women in order to understand your project?
1: I mean, uh, the thing is that the situation in Iran um, has changed uh, since I wrote this book because of the recent protests that are going on. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I can tell you that while I was doing field work, which was from 2008, more or less to 2016, uh, there was relative, um, yeah, it's always relative, relative political stability, um, these are women who cover a range of middle-class backgrounds. Um, you know, some of them live rather comfortably. Some of them are in debt, but, um, they still would be considered middle-class. Um, they have almost all of them when, you know, have a BA and some of them, uh, a master's. Most of them became yes. high school teachers. And um, right now they are um, retired. Well, when I, was, when I did my fieldwork with them, they had already retired.
0: And um, one of the things I really uh, liked about the book that I think uh, will be really beneficial to other people in the study of religion is you interrogate and unsettle uh, who gets to define religion uh, Mm -hmm. by challenging, um, the state's monopoly on defining, you know, quote unquote, true Islam. Um, and I think even now with the the protests going on right now, we're, we're seeing this kind of even in more striking fashion, but, um, how would you describe, uh, you know, at the time, or even today, the state vision of official Islam and, and how, uh, does your work or your approach, uh, help us understand the more kind of intimate wrestling with, Islamic principles and practices uh, in constructing a a, a new vision of the tradition.
1: Right. Um, The dominant uh, view of what is correct or true Islam within the government is a very legalistic one. Um, Essentially, you know, uh, you do your your namaz you know your prayers you 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 do the fasting um whether or not you as a lay muslim in doing these um obligations whether you actually manage to make a connection with god whether you feel totally sincere while you're doing it or not is of secondary importance in that view um, you basically do what you are told and what you have identified as um, what you have been told are obligatory, um, you know, rites and rituals that you're supposed to perform. Now, of course, th- those same people would say, yes, it would be great if you can uh, be completely sincere while you're doing these things. But, you know, um, for a prayer to be valid, it's not necessary. Um, whereas uh, a lot of other people, including the women that I interviewed, uh, question the value of doing a ritual like the daily prayers when um, you don't manage to make a connection to the divine when you when it doesn't affect your uh, behavior toward others, it doesn't make a better person of you. And you just essentially stand there, what Iranians call dolarast. You you bend and you <laughs> uh, stand up, um, so, you know, sort of mechanically and say the verses of the Quran. So um, they question that kind of Islam and um, there is a constant back and forth and even within the government itself, as I said, that's the dominant view. But even within the government, uh, for example, there are clerics who come on television who talk about how important it is to have presence of the heart uh, when you pray. So there is this this um, way of being a, a, a thoughtful, sincere Muslim is a discourse that that circulates very widely. Um, Mm. And that's what these women are also engaged in.
0: Now, um, much of this uh, kind of maybe vernacular vision, uh, if we could call it that, is informed by uh, this tradition of classical mystical poetry um, and this tradition of Irfan. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what this tradition's all about? Who are the the authors that become important? What, what makes this poetry appealing to Iranians and how does it show up in their lives?
1: Sure. I'm, I'm not sure I would call this vernacular. Um, you know, uh, these debates uh, among Muslims about what it is to be a true Muslim, um, how should we make a connection to the divine, what are the ultimate goals, and so on, have been going on for centuries. And they have been undertaken by so many people, you know, by poets, by theologians, by philosophers, by jurists, and so on. And so really these debates about how one ought to live and behave as a Muslim are not not really vernacular. I'm not actually sure what you mean by vernacular, but in any case, they have been at the center of debates among Muslims for a long time. Of course, their importance goes up and down. But when the Islamic Republic came into existence and declared itself um, Islamic, then of course that brought Islam to the center of public debates, because then the question became, okay, you're saying you're Islamic, uh, but you know, how do you define uh, true Islam and what are your sources? Um, and um, in so far as the mystic tradition or the Irfan uh, tradition is concerned in Iran, as you said, it goes back quite a long way in poetry um you know maybe um by the 14th century it had become quite dominant the whole vocabulary of um mysticism um had become dominant in poetry and um here for example in this poetry there are several concepts that ordinary people um come across for example uh presence of the heart which is important when you perform religious rituals, if your heart is not uh, in what you're doing, if 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 you don't have presence of the heart, the value of what you're doing is not is not clear. Um Another uh, concept that's very important is sincerity because this kind of poetry, for example, in particular, I would say Hafez, is, almost obsessed with false piety, with uh, figures who propagate false piety, Um, they try to be very visible Muslims. Whereas in this poetry, the heart is the true seat of piety because it's invisible because you're not showing off to others or trying to come across as more pious than you really are. So um, You know, when you start to learn this poetry, you really also start to learn about religion and about what it is to be a Muslim that does not um, engage in false piety. Um, you know, another concept is the question of hal, which I talk about in my book, uh, which is very present in this poetry and hal is that moment when suddenly um, one feels um, ecstasy and joy, and you feel a connection to the divine. It is very um, fleeting, but but it is an experience of the divine. And in this poetry, one learns that it is that state that's really important um, to achieve However, um, what clerics, most clerics do not like about this concept of hal is that they cannot mediate it. Hal is something that happens and it is not that, you know, the more fervent your belief in the principles of Islam, the more frequently you will feel hal. Hal is something rather mysterious and it's a, a fleeting experience of the divine. Um, so yeah, these are some of the concepts that are that really stand out, and that one learns when one becomes familiar with mystic poetry.
0: Yeah, and you can see how that plays out in the kind of uh, everyday practice and participation of these uh, women that you explore. And uh, a large part of the the book is this ethnography and uh, one chapter you focus on uh, the five obligatory prayers or namaz. Yes. um, And you've kind of given us a little hint of um, some of the perspectives of your interlocutors and how they understand them. Um, But one thing I I found really interesting that I think other listeners will also uh, find relevant is, um, you know, thinking about how your approach and your findings help us understand this seemingly static r- ritual practice in more dynamic ways. Um, can can you talk a little bit about uh, thinking about namaz from this kind of uh, interpretive and personal perspective, as opposed to the kind of legalistic practice that you were mentioning earlier?
1: Right, sure. Um, this is actually how I became interested in this project, um, you know, because when you look at The performance of namaz, and as I say in my book, you know, I grew up in a religious family and I could, you know, I saw people pray. Um, When you look at it from the outside, it seems like a rather repetitive and mindless activity. And you wonder, you know, how it is that over time, you know, across decades, across a lifetime, um, believers can keep doing this and somehow keep it meaningful. So the question for me was this outside perspective that I have is that really how those who engage in namaz see and so um the first clue that I got that this is in fact not the case is when um this the uh, this relative of mine who, Um, performed her evening prayer and then came out and she said, Oh, this was such a good, um, you know, prayer tonight. You know, I felt closer to God and I was completely mystified by that because I had always assumed. And in fact, this, you know, my whole training in the social sciences helped make me make this assumption that, um, you know, a ritual prayer is just that it's, you know, it, you are told what you're supposed to do first you do this second you do that and then finally it's over and it can't go well or badly if you follow this kind of um you know chain but then when she said that night it went really well then i started thinking well but so what does that mean and it could also go badly then and so that's how this whole project started and then it turned and then you know many many um Insights emerged as a result of my ethnography that I hadn't thought about. And I I will give you just a couple of examples. Um, For example, when you stand to perform any kind of repetitive activity, whether it's the namaz, whether it's, you know, playing an instrument, um, whether it's uh, swimming, dancing, whatnot, when you begin to do that, you cannot know how it's going to go. You cannot know in advance how this will unfold. And that's a challenge. And that brings in a certain kind of mystery and excitement. Uh, Sometimes you will manage to have um, concentration throughout, and it will go very well. Sometimes you don't manage that. And in fact, some of these women said to me, once I realize my mind has wandered, I just stop praying um, until I can concentrate again. So by the end of it, um, you, you will see, for example, that your emotional state has changed, but you cannot know in advance that that will happen. So that's one very important aspect of doing something that from the outside looks repetitive. But it's based on the wrong assumption that we know how it's going to go. Of course we don't, because it unfolds in in time, in a time that we cannot know about. Um, Another uh, very important um, discovery that I had was that, for example, I was told that, uh, you know, some of the women said, you know, when I stand to pray and I'm in the middle of praying, I'm also telling God, my concerns, my questions, you know, what is it to be on the right path toward you? Um, Or, you know, I have other concerns and so on. And so I asked whether they can, you know, they consider that maybe somewhat of a contradiction to concentration because they are saying these verses, but then at the same time, they're also talking to God and saying things that may or may not be semantically related to what they're saying. But what they re- replied was that, no, this, this act of communication to God while I'm saying the verses and sharing with God what I want to share, they're one and the same act. And if I manage to tell God what I want to Um, tell him in the process of doing the namaz, then that's a good namaz. And so what I realized is that whereas we assume that the relationship between form and meaning in ritual is always constant and is always relevant, it's actually not the case. You you can be saying things and you can um, use the opportunity of saying those things to say other things right it's not just one a one track kind of uh, matter and so um we need to rethink the ro- the the whole nature of language in rituals that are repeated it doesn't function you know we're very used to the protestant um sort of idea that in when we use language whether it's in a ritual or not we're all, you know, the the whole um, relationship between form and meaning is always the same. It doesn't change. And what is important is the meaning of what we say. But in a ritual, meaning becomes far more complicated than if we're just having a conversation. Um, So these were some of the discoveries that I made while talking to these women about namaz. And I realized how (laughs) far away my idea was that oh this is just a repetitive thing and you stand there and you say these things and then it's over and you know it, it it just doesn't doesn't ever change um also just one more thing is that um i discovered that um their feeling toward namaz changes depending on their mood and some of them would say you know if if i enter namaz in a mood that is light my namas will be like that and if things have happened to me and i feel uh you know low or depressed or whatnot that my namas also reflects that um so yeah
0: <laughs> yeah and you you describe these uh very kind of intricate thoughts and feelings of of your uh, your subjects in in really wonderful ways it's a it's a great uh it's, it's very well written uh, as well throughout the book. Um, you also focus on another type of prayer, uh, du'a. And yes. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you captured these prayers and and conversations around them and how your subjects understood the effects and limitations of du'as.
1: Yes, sure. Um, you know, at first when I began this project, I wasn't paying attention to du'a, uh, partly because um, we're so program to pay attention only to what is obligatory um, for Muslims to do that. du'a, which is not obligatory, you know, you don't have to do it if you don't want to, um, was not quite in my, um, on my radar. But of course, you know, hanging around with these women for so long, um, you know, uh, quickly it became clear that du'a is very important to them for a lot of reasons, um, one is that you know they do dua at all times of uh, at all times of day or night. I mean, it, it doesn't have a particular time. The other thing is that it's in Persian, um, and as you know, the the verses for namaz are in Quranic Arabic. Um, so, and a lot of them said, you know, when I talk to God in Persian, uh, I do feel kind of closer. Um, to god i'm trying to avoid him because in persian we don't have gender in mm-hmm. third person singular so we 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 never refer to god explicitly as him or his but in any case um and um so yeah so it's in persian and then um they what what often happens is that after namaz they kind of relax on their prayer rugs Sajjadeh, and um they start basically talking to god in persian and um they share um not only you know their anxieties or things like you know um god please um you know help i don't know my mother uh, be cured from this disease and so on but there is also um this kind of um what was what was very surprising to me was that when I asked women, um so what you know how what do you say in doa, you know, what is doa like for you and so on, a number of them told me uh, of times when they had become very angry at God. This was completely unexpected for me. Um, and you know, (laughs) they told me about why they became so angry at God and they explained that as a dua because they were talking to God and they were expressing to God just how angry they were at him. And, uh, it was interesting to me that they didn't say things like, oh, well, you know, I say this and that to God, um, which, you know, all of the things that would fit one's expectation. And then they would say things like, but also I've gotten mad at God at times. And then they would put that separate from their other doa. But no, this was also doa because basically anytime you you talk to God, you address God directly. It is doa. And I ended up hearing these very moving stories of their anger at God. Um, you know that I I re, relate some of them in my book, um, and I feel like I can you know summarize one or two of them. But in any case, um, du'a really became a site of of also exploration and discovery. Some of them said, you know, sometimes when I do du'a, it just goes on and on and on. I just talk to God. I say, <laughs> it becomes this kind of unexpected conversation, and I myself realize what I'm thinking about um, in that moment. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. These were these were really fascinating to uh, to read about as well. Um, in the, the the last chapter, you look at um, prayer books and uh, how contemporary readers are interacting understanding both uh kind of traditional historical uh prayer books but then also um newer ones um so yeah. can can you tell us a little bit about how uh, traditional prayer books compare to those written by a younger generation and by by women and and what differences you find between them
1: sure um you know the um two most famous traditional prayer books are sahifa sajjeadie and mafatih al janan and um a lot of the women especially the more educated women they gradually develop a position against mafati um uh, which means keys to paradise um because it makes it the, the, the this prayer book makes it sound like you know, like they say about uh, you know how you can say five Hail Marys and go to heaven or something like that, and it makes um, Muslim. It it tells basically the reader, you know, if you recite such and such prayer, um, you know, nineteen times, uh, you know, God will forgive your sins or something like that. It has a lot of that kind of thing, and for that reason. Many women and especially men, but many women um, don't like it. However, um, I call this uh, chapter a uh, movable mosque. and the reason is that uh, Mafoti also uh, explains to the reader how you know what kinds of rites and rituals to perform. Uh, what day of the week? How to perform, and so on. And so, even if, um, as a woman, uh, you know, someone might not like it, the point is that the book is used to, um, you know, uh, undertake acts outside of the mosque that make you feel like, you know, you you're also doing something in the mosque because. Uh, as you know, uh, women historically have not played a major role in how, you know, what a day looks like in a mosque, you know, what you do this and you do that. And so most of those decisions are not made by women. But of course, women would like that. And so what they do is that with a combination of using a prayer prayer book like the Mafoti, but also their own improvisations, you know, once you know, 10, 15 women get together. There's a lot of conversation about how should we do this? How should we arrange the tablecloth? What are we going to cook? Um, You know, what kind of uh, singer are we going to have? And so on and so forth. And so uh, older, you know, the mafati uh, helps them do this kind of thing. Uh, Like bring the, almost like bring the mosque into your own home. The newer uh, prayer books um, are written by the younger generation, as you said, and a lot of the very popular ones are written by young women. Um, Some of the most famous are written by a young woman called Irfan Nazar Ahari, who has a PhD in philosophy. And she writes these what, what is called in Iran, simple mysticism. Uh the, the genre is called, you know, simple mysticism. And basically, there they are these short poetic texts where the reader can recite them to talk to God. Like one of the, her books that became very famous is called Tea with a Taste of God, or you know, every messenger is um is a dandelion, every dandelion is a messenger. Um messenger, you know, referring to the prophet. So um, what really caught my attention was not just their popularity, but also the fact that, you know, if you go to religious bookstores, these are put on the same shelves as other prayer books. So you have a situation in which you no longer have either an imam or say a cleric writing a prayer in arabic you have a young woman with a phd in philosophy who is writing in persian and that also gets categorized as dua which i i found very interesting and you know a a change in perceptions of dua Yeah.
0: yeah overall the the book really is fascinating and uh I mean, the, the ethnographic detail is is great to read and I'm sure would be really engaging for for students. Uh, students seem to love these kind of narrative parts of life and how they ex- explain kind of larger phenomena. So um, I, I want to uh, ask you as a kind of final question, uh, just how you imagine that others in the study of religion, um, you know, working outside of Islamic studies or uh, in West Asia, um, how, how they might pick up and, and benefit from your work? How do you imagine others might apply your your conclusions or your methods or in other fields?
1: Um well, I don't want to be presumptuous uh <laughs> until, until others, but but I feel like you know there are a couple of things one could say. One is that um for me, uh Doing the ethnography for this book was really an eye-opener. And I realized that before this uh, research, I had taken it for granted that I knew what it means to be religious, whether a Muslim or a Catholic or a Buddhist, whatnot. I, I sort of never really asked myself, never really posed the question, what what is it to be religious? Do you know? And then I realized, no, I don't know. So I think, you know, anyone who works on religion, it would be very good to interrogate themselves <laughs> and see what kinds of assumptions they have that they need to challenge. And then the other thing is, that, is the eth- that ethnography is really important because you learn so much that you didn't know. It's just not possible without ethnography to know the particularities you know, um, and it's the particularities that give some, you know, more than surface understanding of religion and religiosity. So um, it's kind of hard for me to imagine working on religion without doing ethnography. Of course, one could say, well, I I just do textual um, work, which is fine and very necessary but you know ultimately if one is to understand how the texts have uh, affected permeated shaped or not shaped um uh the lives of those who um, are supposed to follow them then i think it's really important to do ethnography
0: well thank you for uh talking about your book it was it was a pleasure to read and congratulations again on the award
1: thank you so much thanks for inviting me